Thank you for tuning in to Finish the Fight, a gaming podcast. If you have not, be sure to check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash finish the fight, where we have some amazing merch and plenty of other things for you guys. If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. Welcome back to Finish the Fight, a gaming podcast. Where we produce and develop the highest quality gaming research in podcast form. I am your host, Alex Kendall. And I'm your host, Derek Baker. And today we're going back to the age of the GameCube. It's one of my favorite games as a child. And I know recently, uh, you know, through 2020, I uh, picked up in the new edition of the game. And uh, it's, just, it's just a fun Build your own house kind of game. It holds so much nostalgia for me. Mm-hmm. I remember going over to your house and playing this game. I remember, um, I remember going over to your house and playing this game. I remember actually buying this game used from one of our mutual friends and having to go and get the memory card just to hold the massive, massive game that was Animal Crossing at the mm-hmm. time. But so much fun. This is my favorite game in the series, the one on the GameCube. I think it did a lot of things right. I haven't played the Switch one. I've heard really good things, but I'm excited to talk about this game because truly, I love it. I, that's exactly it. And so Animal Crossing, known as Dubatsu no More in Japan, is a social simulation game developed and published by Nintendo and released on April 14th, 2001 in Japan on the N64. It was later released in North America on the GameCube September 16th, 2002, and Australia on October 17th, 2003 and in Europe on September 24th, 2004, three and a half years later after the initial Japanese launch. So yeah, so, so we've, we've had it across a couple of different platforms for it, and we actually see it come back to Japan later on in Dobatsu no Mori Plus, which brought back a lot of what the American version had, and especially the GameCube version, having an internal clock and a little, little couple more little secrets. So weird for me to think about this game not having the internal clock because it was so integral to the way that you played the game. I mean, I was locked into specific hours, which kind of sucked as a kid because I couldn't, I don't know, I, if I woke up too early, you know, before soccer or something like that, I couldn't buy anything from the store. I couldn't do yeah. anything, really. I'd have to hold all these fish and other items. So yep, I, I can't imagine like, playing that without the clock. Oh, man, that's exactly it. You'd have to jump in and figure out, like, oh, man, I'm, I'm kind of loaded up. But do I go catch some butterflies this morning or those dragonflies that have been around forever? Make a little ka-ching, ka-ching. <laughs> Come on, Tom Nook. You got to stay open. <laughs> so Animal Crossing answers the question no one asked. What if Nintendo was to try and create their own version of The Sims? Animal Crossing allows the player to take on the role of a modern-day college student by inheriting debt as soon as their life begins. With the player player indebted Tom Nook, they set out exploring their new town and discover that there is more to this new land than just paying back a greedy tanuki. Fishing, digging for fossils, helping the villagers, redecorating, there are numerous ways to spend your time in the game. As you progress further, 
you realize there's so much more than just the surface level bits of fishing and bugging with such gems as, you know, catching KK Slider on a Saturday night, listening to some tunes, you know, as well as to like fully completing the museum by donating bugs, fossils, and fish. I was so bummed anytime that I missed KK Slider. One of my, I tried to remember, but when it's week to week and it's like, oh, KK Slider, I think he comes out Friday, Saturday night. I don't know, but I always seem to miss, the, miss him. I always wanted the new tunes for my house. Mm-hmm. Definitely one of my favorite parts of this game. Well, it was. And going back to the internal clock, as you said, you know, he was there for only a couple hours on a Saturday night. It was like 7 or 8 p.m. to 11 p.m. was the only time you could catch him and be able to get those tunes, you know, whether you requested them or whether you're like, hey, KK, I trust you. Play, play, me, play me a tasty jam. Let's talk about the famous studio. We all know Nintendo. But let's talk a little bit about their history. In 1889, Nintendo founder Fusajiro Yamauchi began involvement in the gaming industry by creating Japanese playing cards under the name Nintendo Karuta. The business then developed into Yamauchi Nintendo & Co. in 1933, after the business began creating Western-style playing cards. Notably, at one point, they were making the most popular playing cards in Japan. These surprising and humble beginnings would make way for one of the most popular video game companies in the world. It wasn't until 1963 that video games became a part of their production, however, creating game consoles for at-home use. The first console that Nintendo ever released for at-home play was a Japan exclusive made in collaboration with Mitsubishi called the Color TV Game 6. While it did have multiplayer capabilities, there was only one game available, Light Tennis, a game similar to Pong. People still enjoyed it, however, with millions of copies being purchased. This console made way for the subsequent iterations, Color TV Game 15, Color TV Racing 112, Color TV Block Kusher, and Computer TV Game. 1979 would see Nintendo open up its first United States headquarters in New York City. Let me just say, I really appreciate that Nintendo at some point said, hey, maybe we should change up the way we name things. You know, don't get me wrong. I would love me a uh, Game and Watch nineteen seven two four two, but I, I do like that we just have some simple names now. It's definitely one of those I think more traditional Japanese naming styles. Like uh, Yamaha guitars are really bad about this. It's they'll be like, "This is the RGX one one eight two seven four." And this is the RGX 134579A. And you're like, man, um, I'm looking for this specific Yamaha guitar. Let me uh, pull out my notes app. <laughs> let, me, let me go through my Dewey Decimal of guitars here. Can you help and, me uh, find see this exactly there? where that is? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's interesting to see because, you know, we did see name change, obviously, because we did have Donkey Kong emerge as a coin-operated game in 1981 being followed by the release of the Famicom system or the Nintendo Entertainment System as it was known in the United States. This would be the beginning of some of the most nostalgia-inducing video games of all time, including Super Mario Bros. and The Legend of Zelda. In the late 1980s to early 1990s, the world would also see the release of a wireless controller for the Nintendo Entertainment System or the NES, as well as the Game Boy, both of which were groundbreaking milestones for the video game industry. The end of the 1990s and beginning of the early 2000s 
would see the Game Boy become the world's most popular console with over 100 million units sold. The Nintendo 64 and Game Boy both had additions to the Pokemon, Legend of Zelda, and Mario series that allowed the franchises to grow. But from these games' shadows would come one of Nintendo's most unique and best-selling franchises yet, Animal Crossing. Some big names right there. Zelda, Donkey Kong, Mario, NES, Game Boy. I still have an NES, and I still play the original NES. I have the NES Classic as well. But mm-hmm. there's no denying the impact that those machines had, in my opinion. That's what I grew up playing, actually. I didn't have a Super Nintendo, so I was a little bit behind than some of my friends who did grow up playing sure. Super Nintendo. But no denying the impact that they've had. Crazy that they started with playing cards and have turned into what they have. Well, and to take your kind of original IPs of, you know, Link, Mario, Donkey Kong, everything around that era, and to continue it, to have this character who's been evolving a bit over the series, it always kind of falls back to the roots. But to have those household names, like there's not a lot of other companies that have kept that that have kept like these same quote-unquote mascots of Nintendo that have evolved over time and still done so well. To me, the Nintendo characters are equivalent to like the comic book heroes that have stuck around since, you know, the 40s, 50s, 60s, mm-hmm. 70s. It's become one of these iconic things. And even though it's only been around since the 80s, really, you recognize instantly those characters the same way you would a Batman or a Superman. Absolutely. And, you know, your, your other competitors, such as Microsoft and Sony, they have characters. I mean, you've got like the Master Chief for Microsoft. You know, you have kind of, I guess, Crash Bandicoot, who was the mascot, as well as Sly Cooper, Spyro, Kratos. You know, you have all these other ones, but nothing. It's, it's all in the shadow of Nintendo, in my opinion. Absolutely. At 21 years of age, Katsuya Iguchi was getting ready to graduate from college, but he was unsure on where to apply. A friend suggested he apply to Nintendo, since he was an avid gamer, spending most of his free time at local arcades. Three years after the release of Nintendo's Famicom in Japan, Iguchi did not know about the console's existence. He thought they were still just making playing cards. After learning the company now produced video games, he was eager to apply for a position at Nintendo. And after he was hired in 1986, he worked on an unnamed Formula One racing game. From there, he would work as a level designer on the iconic Super Mario Bros. 3. Though Iguchi was proving himself as a successful programmer at Nintendo, he felt lonely. He moved over 100 miles, leaving behind his friends and family to work at the company. He wanted to create a game as a director that resonated with the sense of family, friendship, and community. A game that was truly about spending time with those you care about. It would be another 14 years before his ideas for this game would come to life, and it all started with a dungeon adventure game. The overall concept for this game was simple. Iguchi wanted to create a, quote, game where you hang out and do stuff with a bunch of people in a single field, with this, you know, overall emphasis on communication. Though director Hisashi Nogami has jokingly stated that they simply wanted to make a game for the Nintendo 64 DD, Iguchi had written a two-page design doc for the game titled Proposing a Communication Field. At the time, the Nintendo 64 was at the forefront for having four players play consecutively on one console. Iguchi and his team wanted to create a game that allowed multiple people to play the same saved file at separate times. Iguchi was inspired by this idea due to the fact that he was always so busy with work, he never had time to play games with other people at the same time. 
This game was going to be unlike anything else on the market. There was no ending, and the team was not too concerned on dialing down exactly what the overall genre of the game would be. For the longest time, the team didn't know what genre to put on the packaging. They settled on simply calling it a communication game. Iguchi thought about many of the RPGs at the time, where the hero of the game was always so powerful. He wanted the main character to be the opposite, gaining their powers from other characters. In this case, animals. Originally, the player would have their own animals at their disposal, commanding them based on certain buttons. Each animal had their own strengths and weaknesses that would assist the player along their journey, mainly utilizing them in dungeons. Eventually, the animals would not be enough to progress, so the player would need the help from another player in the game to continue their journey, utilizing the 64DD's online capabilities. Which would have been fantastic. You know, again, going back to, unfortunately, the failed 64DD, having online capabilities that early on to be able to play with friends potentially across the world, if not just in your community connected to a network, is pretty huge. I do find it a little bit interesting that this guy was lonely and wanted to create a game where you just had friends in the game, but then it became something where you did have to have a friend. And if you didn't have a friend, Mm -hmm. you weren't going to be able to do any more in the game. I think that might be shocking and surprising to a lot of people. So it's probably good that that didn't work out. Oh, no, no, I agree. I mean, it is Nintendo. (laughs) In all fairness, they have created some stuff that makes you go, hmm? Yeah. Well, hmm? But, (laughs) but, you know, it still would have been cool to see. The game was speculated to have started development around 1998 due to an interview with Nintendo designer Shigeru Miyamoto stating that they were working on a communication game in 1999. When pitched, the game was supposed to appeal to a broad female audience as well. To help accomplish this, most of the women working in Nintendo's Entertainment Analysis and Development Division, so the EAD, were brought onto the project. These seven women would later become part of the core design team, shaping the game into what it was upon release. Many other members of the Nintendo company would impact the game in other ways too. Many of the animals' faces were modeled off of developers working on the game, as well as important members of the Nintendo company. These included the character Hector, being based off of Nintendo's former president, Hiroshi Yamauchi, and K.K. Slider being inspired by the game's lead composer, Kazuyumoi Tataka. Early playtests of the game were met with some interesting feedback. Players felt that the male protagonists, who were wearing no helmet at the time, resembled a girl wearing a skirt. To combat this idea, the male protagonist was given a horned hat, since it seemed masculine enough so that no one would mistake the gender. I, dude, I remember jumping into this and being like, are you a boy or a girl? Okay, if you're a boy, you get a horn hat. <laughs> I remember that being one of the weirdest parts. I'm glad that they changed that in the future games, mm-hmm. because having the horned hat was just so bizarre. If I remember right, you can't get rid of it. No, no, no. That and, was just like your head. Yeah. And so it would like match your clothes, right? Yep. Yeah, it was one of those things where, like, the girl would have kind of this pointed hat, and then all, like, the, the male boy characters would have that horn That's helmet, right. and your, 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 like, top of your head helmet part would change with your outfit. So if you're wearing, like, that fiery shirt, your helmet would change that fiery thing, but your horns would still remain the same. That's right. So this game was first created as a way to use the real-time clock that was built into the Nintendo 64DD, along with additional storage and the online service. Iguchi was tasked with creating a team for this experimental project, 
but the game would never make its way onto the 64DD due to several delays for the console add-on. That, and the overall failure of it in Japan, development for the game was moved from being on a disc to the Nintendo 64 cartridge. But the 24-hour idea stayed in the game. Since the memory was limited, all of the data needed to be stored on a controller pack. Peripherals on peripherals. Since they were finding ways to save memory space, they cut the idea of having four islands based on each season down to one island. Additionally, all extensive dungeons were cut from the game. Essentially, the idea of the player going on an adventure in the game was scrapped. Now they needed to figure out what the player was going to do on their own island. They threw around the idea of players having a room that they could decorate however they see fit, but they would need to collect all the items and materials for the room throughout the island. To do this, you had to communicate with the characters around you. The island started slowly evolving into a village from there, along with the animals standing on two legs rather than walking on all four. More elements were added to the game, like fishing and collecting insects. They still wanted to utilize the idea of time being a major factor in this game, so certain bugs or fish could only be caught during a certain time of day. And, you know, we, like Derek had said earlier, we grew up with that, you know, getting up either early before school or, like you said, before practice, and either catching those early fish or those early bugs, or those fish that only came out at night, or bugs only came out at night, like fireflies and things along those lines. It really shaped the game to make you want and even have to play. Whether you're off school or you're like, man, I'm not going to school today. We've got to be catching that, <laughs> that bass that we've caught 30,000 times. Yeah. Sorry, Dad. I can't go to school today because there is a fishing competition. And if I don't show up, all the villagers are going to be like, hey, where were you? And then your dad's like, fishing? All right. Sounds good, Derek. You get to stay home and you go fishing with the villagers. You do what you got to do. Yeah. Yeah, not exactly. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of the more interesting dialogue was added around the end of the game. This was to encourage players to talk to one another in real life about the conversations with the characters on their island. Or for instance, if a small child is part of a conversation with a villager and doesn't exactly understand certain words or phrases, they'd be encouraged to ask their parents about it, thus creating more conversations from the game itself. As long as it's just a small child, not just a regular child, uh, only small children did that. Oh, only the small kids. Only the small kids. They're playing this game that's text-based and they can't read. It's all on them. But, uh... <laughs> it's all on them. Uh, so as far as the release, the game was rather successful in Japan. And Nintendo looked for a Western release for the game. However, the Nintendo 64 was at the end of its lifespan, so development began to port the game over to the Nintendo GameCube, utilizing the console's in-game clock with the slogan, the real-life game that's playing even when you're not. This port for the Western audience was detailed and worked on extensively. Thousands of lines of text had to be translated to English, and new holiday items had to be added into the game to reflect the culture. One item that was changed was a lampshade that went from iHeart64 to iHeartGC. Man, that just has the same ring to it. Absolutely. This process took translators over six months, making it one of Nintendo's largest translation projects at the time. The same could be said for the European release, since the studio had to once again replace holidays, items, and conversations to better fit the regions. Ooh, I didn't even think about that. Yeah, it that uh, yeah, it adds wow. a lot to them to have to do. I mean, you know, changing things over to like you know Christmassy times here, Easter, Fourth uh, of July, New Year's, and then some of that obviously we share with you know the European release, but they have a a bunch of different holidays that went into that. 
And so, yeah, like changing that and being like, radio, cheerio, good day, chat. <laughs> I assume that's in the game. You used to be able to change the greetings that they would use for you. Mm-hmm. So maybe they just left that the same for the most part, like a hey, hi, things like that. And then you could change it to like, sup, yo, what's good? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. You could only fit like eight letters and it was not, it was very limited. Yeah. And, and yeah, just changing it regionally. I, it was a big ordeal, but kind of needed to be done. During the port process, NES and Super Nintendo emulators in the game that were originally meant for the 64DD were reprogrammed for the GameCube. This allowed owners of a Game Boy Advance to link to their GameCube to unlock new features, like riding a ferry from the character Cap'n to new islands with exclusive fruits and animals. The GameCube version also introduced e-reader cards. By using the Game Boy Advance in an e-reader, one could buy trading cards and scan them into their village. Scanning these cards allowed the player to unlock new songs and items for the village. Nintendo was so impressed with the GameCube version that they translated it back to Japanese and re-released it as Dobatsu no Mori E Plus or just Plus. And with, within that, like I said, they've changed a couple things and they've added some additions to it that were kind of just not design oversights, just they've already produced it. And they're like, let's go back and add a couple more other little tidbits in. Really cool that they added in the emulators to the game. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite parts about Animal Crossing for sure. And really made me appreciate some of the games that I had missed out on as a kid. Because like I said, I grew up with the NES. But I didn't have Punch-Out. Mm-hmm. And Punch-Out, I remember being in there and being like, this could be its own game. Like, I'll just play this. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to log well, into Animal Crossing to play Punch-Out because this game's amazing. I can't sell my fish, Nook. You're not open yet. Guess who's going to go play some Mike Tyson? And in a lot of ways, I kind of look at this as... Just, I, I have to imagine that seeing that renewed interest in some of these old games is what made them think about trying to bring a lot of those games back through the virtual console and things like mm-hmm. that. Because at a certain point, you could buy these games. I remember having Punch Out like on my cell phone and playing that in the middle of class. Yeah. It's really cool that I, I, I have to think, at least for our generation, that being able to play those games in this is sort of what renewed that desire that nostalgia factor to go back and play a lot of those old games again a hundred percent and we're going to be talking more about that in detail in the episode and we're going to talk about a little thing i found for you derek about a hidden nintendo entertainment system console that didn't have a game in it oh and you could actually put your own in there oh so we'll get to that later but now let's move over derek let's hand it over tell us a little bit about the marketing the marketing was targeted mostly towards children with a Japanese commercial for the game featuring a young schoolgirl playing the game. Now, in America, several commercials were released for the game. These commercials showed off in-game footage, but also featured people dressed in Animal Crossing costumes, mimicking the real world. Have, do you remember this commercial? So there was a couple of them, and it was four characters. It was like two female characters, two male characters, and they basically mimicked... Because at the start of the game, you basically answered questions from this cat rover on the train that set the look of your character, set like the eyes and set, you know, like the demeanor of your character. And all those characters within these commercials represented it. So there was one dude who's wearing that flame t-shirt, which is like iconic. It's the iconic flame shirt. Oh man. If I wasn't getting that flame shirt when I started, I'm restarting. Also, if I had like weird eyes, (laughs) you you have to like the flame shirt's the way to go. And so, yeah, it's, it's like those half closed kind of stoner eyes. And that's basically what he is. They're like, pa- like 
Paul just sits there and listens to techno and the commercial's so great because it's this dude in this costume just mashing his face into the radio, just like <laughs> back and forth. I'm doing the motion. No one of you could see it, but like head bobbing to like this and he's just asking people for their food. And then one other one is great. It's the two girls talking and it's like a catty fight of being like, uh, where did you get that dress? It looks like you found it in the dump. And the girl looks down and goes, yeah, that's where I found it. Oh, the dump. Yep. So much good stuff in the dump. Oh. I forgot about the dump. Dude, it's so good. It's the commercials. Were, <laughs> they were cheeky. They were funny. The real world was hot. And so basically, it those commercials would start off with this intro. Each one had the same intro. And it's like, four friends enter into a village together. And then it breaks them into like these little <laughs> arguments. And then it shows the end game footage of their game character, you know, playing with the others and, and had a little mixture of it. So it was it was clever. It was like goofy. And it was, I think, as 2000s and Nintendo as possible. Oh, man, I miss those commercials so bad. Like that Pokemon one with the bus drivers. So iconic to me. Those ones, those ones, and the ones around that were so terrifying because the bus drivers like, I'm going to catch them all. By crushing this bus, <laughs> I'm going to murder these Pokemon and shove them into this tiny cartridge. <laughs> but it's stuck. I mean, those, you know, if you guys haven't, go back and watch like late 90s, early 2000s commercials. They were kind of all like that. Like, not there even just video a, games. There's a huge playlist on YouTube if you just want to go and watch. I mean, you can watch basically all of them. I watched it one night just for a little nostalgia trip. Mm-hmm. Really interesting. Let's move on. Let's talk about the gameplay. Now, as you know, this game kind of allows you to do anything, but we're going to break down the path, I guess you would say, or kind of the start of it. One of the main goals of the game, given to the player during the game's opening cutscenes, is to increase the size of the player character's house. This house is the repository, or basically your home, for your furniture and other items acquired during the course of the game. It can be customized in several ways, such as roof color, furniture, music, wallpaper, and flooring. These customizations are judged by the Happy Room Academy, the HRA, which as a kid, I failed every time. I didn't understand the rating system. It's like when I just threw as much crap in there as I could, I felt like I got amazing ratings. Mm -hmm. But whenever I actually tried to organize the design, they were like, yeah, it's not really that good, man. It's not that good. And they did really. You got 80 fish in here? This is amazing. You should keep this up. This is like a little aquarium home. Great. But, oh, you got a chair and a table and a bed and all kinds of cool stuff. Yeah, living situation, no. not so much. Now, that, <laughs> now they did go back and, and produce a guide for it. So they did base it off of kind of feng shui. So each north, south, east, west, if you had particular colors, it increased this HRA. And there's a whole guide on this, which is pretty interesting to get it. Because basically, you, you got trophies and awards for hitting certain point milestones. Oh, yeah. So Tom Nook, as we had said, a tanuki, a raccoon dog in the Japanese version, and just a raccoon in the American and European versions, runs the local store. At the beginning of the game, he gives you the player their first home with a mortgage of 19,800 bells, the in-game currency. After paying the debt, part of which is done through a part-time job with Nook, the house is expanded, prompting another loan from Nook. The house has expanded several times during the course of the game. You know, you keep expanding the main space. It's just one floor to start. Then eventually you'll get like an upper floor and you get like just all these different little 
get like a basement you get mm-hmm. like a you expand the main floor i think you can expand the basement as well so yeah so it, it keeps increasing the bell count so you know up towards like several hundred thousand bells and he is as every good greedy loan shark just constantly keeps you there like hey we're gonna upgrade your house you're like i, I don't really want that we've upgraded your house <laughs> it was always we, the worst too when he did that because he'd be like you paid me off that's great we're gonna upgrade your house now so uh you uh, you're gonna have to wait a day, but when we do it, we're it's gonna be great. And then you pay him the money, and then he was like, "Well, by the way, since you paid me off, I'm upgrading my store." So it's like basically a day of lost time. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's exactly it, because players can sell basically anything to Nook in exchange for bells. So that includes bugs, fish, fossils, garbage, fruits, any bits that you have in your inventory. He'll pretty much take. As the player buys and sells items at Nook's store, it will gradually expand offering a wider selection of products for purchase. Players can also visit locations such as the Able Sisters Clothing Shop, where they can purchase or design new clothes, the police station, where they can obtain additional items from the lost and found, and the museum, where they can donate fossils, paintings, fish, and insects to put on display. The village initially contains six villagers, and more villagers move in and out depending on the player's actions. There is a maximum of 15 villagers that can live there at any time, with each villager having a home that the player can visit. Possible interactions between the player and the villagers are almost limitless, including talking, trading items, completing tasks, writing letters, and buying medicine for when they get sick. The villagers can also interact with each other independent of player control based on their own demeanor. So the boy characters have three different demeanors. The girl characters have three different demeanors. Some work well together and they're happy and dancey. Some get sad and rain clouds over them. So it's, it's kind of this, this neat interaction to see. I don't know about you. I don't think I ever had 15 villagers living there at one time because the villagers, they'd move in and out of the town. Mm -hmm. Even when you got a new one, it's like, oh, this is a cool guy. Your old cool guy would leave. Just felt like there was this constant exchange of characters in and out. I I believe you really, because I know in the newer ones, they followed this path really well. You had to interact so many times to not... It was like a gamble to not guarantee that they would stay, but it was a percentage chance that they would stay. And the more interactions you had and the more like you traded items or brought the medicine when they were sick, it's more apparent in the newer ones because they'll actually like play like little tones. It's like, ooh, they like you now. Or, ooh, like they really want to stay. Whereas in that one, it was just kind of a guesstimation of like, oh, it looks like they left. Or like you said, the saddest part was like when you had like the cool eagle or something. Uh, I love you, like, the eagle. you like, you log on, you're like, I'm gonna go hang out with cool eagle today. And it's like, <laughs> Cool Eagle has moved out. Cool You're Eagle like, had like the uh, Native American kind of home, I think, right? Everything was like made mm-hmm. of sticks and wood and had all these like tribal designs. He was really cool. If I'm thinking really of cool. the same eagle. Oh, we're thinking of the same eagle because, you know, he would, he'd move down. You're like, damn you, eagle. Yeah. Now I got, now I got garbage frog that I didn't want. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was one of the coolest parts of the town, but sometimes one of the, the more disappointing parts of the town when you log back in and see your your best fake friend had moved away and gave you a letter and that's all you got (laughs) let's talk a little bit more about the town it's split into 30 units known as acres which themselves are divided into squares houses trees ponds beachfront buildings etc are all found on acres while squares determine where on the overworld they're placed there's a river that runs through the town and the town has two or three levels of land which can be traversed using ramps Every time a new town is created, the layout is randomly generated, including the starting villagers and native fruit trees. 
and this is the case for every Animal Crossing game. Consequently, the chances of two towns starting out with the exact same layout, let alone the same set of villagers, is very slim. And this is one of the things that would also kind of force me into starting a new game sometimes. Once Mm -hmm. I had played it a few, you know, you start to figure out, like, if I get a town that has a bad path to a thing that I'm going to visit all the time, I just need to restart it. Because sometimes there'd be a cliff and you had to find the outlet of the cliff to go down to the beach where you could catch some of the more expensive fish to sell. Like, I'm, I basically paid off my whole house catching them red snappers, them barred knife jaws, and if I couldn't get to the, yeah. the ocean, then, I mean, that was like 2,000, 5,000 of fish right there. That's big money. Yeah, and, and it, just, it just complicated, not necessarily complicated, and again, this is just a, not a, I don't know if it's a minor nuisance. It was a big nuisance when I played. But the, yeah, it's the nuisance of having a bad path of constantly, like you said, going to eat any of the things you wanted to do, the dump, the you know especially time next door it was just rough and so every time you reset especially the river and where those cliff paths hit yeah that's really where you had to focus and if i remember correctly later on in the game there's a mayor in the town that you can talk to and he will allow you to pay to build an extra bridge but that bridge is also sort of randomly assigned to the there's like basically two parts and one part of the river will have the bridge already there and then he'll add one somewhere along the other one to try and make it a little bit easier. But honestly, it takes so much time that you might as well just regenerate. And Yeah, to like really enjoy it, to like get the first path down and say, okay, the bridge will probably go down in this area where there definitely needs to be a bridge. I can live without it for a while. One of the other interesting things about this was the Game Boy Advance connectivity. You could use a Nintendo GameCube, Game Boy Advance link cable. Each town has an island that can be accessed by plugging in a Game Boy Advance with a GameCube link cable, and a character called Captain ferries the player to the island for free. An exclusive animal roams the island with whom the player can become friends. The island has an exclusive type of fruit, coconuts. The player can also decorate a small communal beach house and fish on the shores. Upon leaving, the player can download the island to a GBA and give fruit to the villager who drops bells. If the player returns to the island, they can pick up the money that has been dropped. Players can leave the islander tools to use, such as the shovel or net. Downloaded islands can be traded between GBAs using a Game Boy Advance link cable. I'm going to be honest, I forgot about that villager on there until we started doing more of these notes. Because based on your Game Boy, it would be like this is like little mini games you could do with them to earn those bells and just play like a whole separate little mini game for some reason on your Game Boy Advance. It was pretty interesting. Yeah, that was one of the things I used to love going to the island because Mm -hmm. I think that it had the coolest outfits. That Hawaiian shirt, man. Oh, yeah. You get the red Hawaiian shirt, the blue Hawaiian shirt, take those back, get a, I don't know, like cool Islander look. One of the things, uh, we'll talk about this a little bit later, but you can try and plant other fruits in your actual town mm-hmm. to have a variety of fruit. And because they're like technically exotic, you sell them to Tom Nook for more bells. One of the things you can't do is take those coconuts back there and do that. I don't know if you ever tried that, but they are exclusive to the island. And I always found that kind of interesting because even if I tried to plant those down by the beach, you know, where a coconut tree might make sense, they would always die. 
So, yeah. So, you know, you just got to have those green thumbs. It's digitally programmed in, but got to have those green thumbs. The Game Boy Advance can also be used while shopping at the Able Sisters store. The pattern design tool can be downloaded to a Game Boy Advance, and the player can then upload designs made on the Game Boy to the GameCube. And I think I tried this, but I didn't see a huge advantage to, to doing that. Because if it was something like the DS, where you had the touchscreen, yeah. definitely. But that wasn't an option on the Game Boy Advance. No, I, 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 to me, it felt like more of like an Etch-A-Sketch, where you had to just kind of go through with like a pad, hit little different buttons, change some colors around. If you were dedicated to it, I could see it working out really well of having little control and taking it along, but it wasn't for me. And then, of course, the game is also compatible with the e-reader because everything was compatible with the e-reader, right? One of Nintendo's it. greatest inventions ever. Yeah, Love hey, that e-reader. The e-reader is great. It didn't die before the game was even out. It was just fantastic. <laughs> you could use it by visiting the post office while connected via the link cable. And you could scan Animal Crossing themed cards to receive new items, town tunes, or pattern designs. Mm -hmm. it, was a, it was a novel idea, and they definitely based it around Animal Crossing to start. Now, like a lot of Nintendo peripherals, it didn't even really last that long because there's actually two that we'll talk about when we get to the Nintendo games that were supposed to be scanned in. And the e-reader died before they could release the cards. So players ended up doing, you know, data mining and could find them. But they were originally only supposed to be available through these cards that Nintendo never released. Sad days. It's sad days. So as far as the multiplayer... Up to four players can take turns creating their own houses in a single village. They can each affect the village in their own ways, communicate with each other via the town message board and mail, and share in the experiences of the village. Multiple players can take turns shipping items to each other via Tom Nook using a system of codes. The traveling system allows each player to visit players' villages. This system required an additional memory card with the game's data and three blocks of memory to save travel data. Players can meet new villagers, shop at stores, drop items, and do almost anything else that they can do in their own town. Visitors have reduced privileges and do not receive the same services they would in their own town, however. So, like, you can't necessarily go talk to the mayor and do some stuff. You can't do anything that would change the landscape or change kind of very important things you couldn't do. But as far as shopping, digging stuff up, communicating with villagers, that was all available. You know, for example... Tom Nook will not travel and paint a roof because you don't own a home and you can't interact with some of the like police dogs. After visiting another town, one of the villagers may move to the town that you visited. Or basically, you visited a town, it might move to your town. If the visited town has a full 15 villagers, this will prompt someone from the visited town to move away. Sayonara. Depending upon how many memory cards a player or their friend owns, there could be many other villages to see and different items to find. If a player interacts with a villager who has moved away from their village to the visited village, the villager will remember the player. So whenever, whenever uh, Cool Eagle would leave, <laughs> and you're like, and you go visit your friend's village, and he's there, and you go, Cool Eagle, why, Cool Eagle, why? <laughs> this was definitely like one of the cool things about the game to me. Mm -hmm. Eventually, at first, I didn't have two memory cards. I, I think I had to buy a, a second one when I bought this game originally. 
just because it took up literally all the blocks on the memory card that I had. So when I did buy the second one, I was able to kind of just do it on my own on the old, on my own GameCube. Yeah. And really the whole intention behind that was just to get the fruits from the other towns. I remember just mm-hmm. kind of doing that over and over again till I could get I think there's like five fruits or something like that, but yeah, to get, to get them all and to have those cuz the other thing with the fruits is your native fruit, I believe was only worth 100 bells. Foreign fruits were the 500 bells. So it was definitely worth getting those other ones, growing fruit trees and doing a big harvest. Especially, yeah, I mean, if you could get them back and growing consistently in your own town, I mean, it's just, Mm -hmm. that's super easy money. I want to talk about, this is, like I've said multiple times, now my favorite part of the game, the NES games. Players can collect various Nintendo Entertainment System games in Animal Crossing, which are playable via emulation. North American releases are packaged with a memory card that automatically gives the player two games upon creating a game file. Others are acquired in various ways, such as gifts from villagers, hidden on the island, or via special giveaways from Nintendo's website. The available NES games differ slightly between each release. And so for these games, we had Balloon Fight, Baseball, Clue Clue Land D, Donkey Kong, Donkey Kong Jr., Donkey Kong Jr. Math, Donkey Kong 3, Excite Bike, Golf, Pinball, Punch Out, mm-hmm. heck yeah, Soccer, Tennis, Wario's Woods. Four additional NES games are not obtainable in game through normal means. In North America, two of these games, Ice Climber and Mario Bros., were released through the use of two e reader cards, which were not distributed in Europe or Japan. Japanese players received Ice Climber as a gift if they used a special service provided by Nintendo to transfer their save data from Dabutsu to Dabutsu no Mori Plus. This service has since been discontinued. Yeah, because, you know, they're going to keep it up for 20-something years. Great. (laughs) Super Mario Bros. was distributed in Japan as a Famitsu prize to Dabutsu no Mori Plus players, and The Legend of Zelda exists in the game's code, but it's not accessible in-game. These four bonus games can be obtained using a cheat device in earlier GameCube releases, but were removed in Dabutsu no Mori E+. The Advanced Play feature allows players to link a Game Boy Advance to the GameCube and temporarily transfer the NES game to the handheld. This was not compatible with games that were originally produced for the Famicom Disk System, such as Clue Clue Land D and The Legend of Zelda, or are larger than 192 kilobytes, such as Punch-Out! and Warriors Woods, as they cannot fit into the GBA's RAM. All other games, however, can be played via advanced play, but multiplayer functionality is not supported, and their graphics appear slightly squashed on the GBA's display due to its smaller vertical resolution. This was actually kind of neat. I mean, granted, you didn't get some of your like heavy hitters like Punch-Out on there, but to be able to just transfer it over, especially, like let's say, you know, Derek and I were playing together, and, you know, it's the early 2000s. What are you going to do? But... Drink Vess. Just a oh, Vess, baby. Drink some Vess. Is Vess available all over? People might not know, know what Vess is. It's just soda. Yeah, just, just hit, us, hit us up with the questions. What are your Vess <laughs> questions in the next episode? So you get like, you know, you, you pop a Vess. You may get, you may get a little, 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 little Mickey D's or something. Oh, yeah. And you're chilling. Only one player can play. You hook up your GBA, man. You are playing some golf. You are playing some Donkey Kong Jr. math. Yeah. I mean, you know, it was just a cool feature. It is. And especially if like your friend had one of the NES games that maybe you didn't have downloaded on your Game Boy, take it home mm-hmm. with you. Yeah, I want to play like 
a little bit of punch out a little bit longer. I'm going to take this home with me. Yeah, so it allowed like the transferability for it. An additional NES furniture item was intended to allow players to emulate other NES titles not included with the game by reading NES ROMs stored on the player's memory card. While the emulator remains accessible in the final game, no additional ROMs were ever distributed, leaving the feature ultimately unused. In 2018, an independent software developer managed to reverse engineer the emulation software and convert ROMs into a compatible format, allowing new NES games to be imported into the Animal Crossing emulator. And I saw this, they did a video on it, they put like Mega Man in there and all these other classics that you could just boot up on this uh, NES that you found. (laughs) Just, it's really cool. I'm just, I think it's really funny that in like way after this game came out, what, like 15 years after this game came out and they're like, let me boot up Animal Crossing so that I could play Mega Man on the emulator in Animal Crossing that I could just play on the emulator that I uploaded it from. <laughs> well, I just, I just think it's so cool that, you know, as a software dev going in like, okay, there has to be something with this. There has to be a reason that this is in there. Let's peep the code. Oh, it's for that? Let me spend some time reverse engineering this again and putting this in there. And it's a cool feature I wish Nintendo had done. Granted, it was a, still a weird time in tech where like tech was advancing, but it wasn't far enough along to do DLC or a couple other things, especially for the GameCube. But it would have been awesome to buy like a separate memory card with Mega Man and you know Mario Bros and all these other NES classics on there that you could then load up. I mean, that replayability for me would be huge. Yeah, that would be awesome. And now that you said that, um, I'm really sad about this game. See? Animal Crossing <laughs> is the worst now. It's stupid. It's going, down, it's going down as the worst game in history now. It, it, didn't, it wasn't complete. They did no DLC for it. It's basically an unplayable game at this point. So we did have some cut material in Animal Crossing, in addition to some of the things we've already talked about. Like, at the beginning of the game, Rover takes out a cell phone and calls Tom Nook. This was later changed to Rover going and calling Nook on the train, and it was changed due to the fact that talking on a cell phone in Japan is considered rude. There was an unused cat villager nicknamed Caddy. Way to go, Nintendo. Very clever. And the game was possibly going to be called That Day-to-Day Life, but the team was told not to call it that, presumably by Nintendo, which makes a lot of sense. That's a weird name for a game. <laughs> hey, Derek. How's that day-to-day life? Honestly, like, that day-to-day life and whatever they proposed the first time where it's like a contribution to an open field or whatever, mm-hmm. those are those sound like the most boring games of all time. They just sound really sad. I don't know. It, it almost feels to me like a mundane existence type of game where you could go and be depressed. Yeah, it's not, <laughs> it sounds like an indie game that would come out now that's like super artsy. And like yeah. sad and like has to deal with like depression and mental health. It's like that day to day life. Yeah. <laughs> just going through it. Exactly. But, you know, luckily we got Animal Crossing and, you know, it's stuck. Great name with it. Now, in addition to the cut material, there was also a beta map not accessible in the normal game. It's actually accessible through a wrong warp glitch. If you enter the post office as the hourly music fades on the same day as the sports fair, Inside, you can pay off your debt. And as you exit, the game attempts to play your debt dance at the same time the sports announcer is announcing the next game. 
Your character will clip through the floor sideways and respawn at a lighthouse on the beta map. This map includes terrain tests with pitfalls, villager and gyroid interactions that go nowhere, random furniture placements, and tested flowers. The only way off this beta map is to fully reset your town. Yeah, so this is, again, I don't really understand how people find this stuff. I mean, this was specifically like on an hourly change during this sports fair day, going in and paying your debt off, leaving, and basically your character trying to do two animations plus two different speech bubbles popping up. And the game just goes, I'm done with you. Go to this other town. <laughs> and it's tough because, as Derek had said, you have to fully reset. Like if you, if you just like, lo- like quit and come back, you're still on that beta island. So you have to restart the entire village. I really feel bad. I feel like someone probably did that and just it happened to fall on that day and they fell into beta hell. And now they have to reset their entire time. It's basically like they, they had a heart attack and died like from the joy of paying off their debt. So their character just <laughs> yeah. dies and they wake up in hell and they went to, they had game a, over. cardiac arrest as soon as they left. They got scared. They're like going outside to like celebrate and the sports center just yells at them that pole vaulting's the next thing going on. <laughs> it, and they just fall over and it, die. It's that sim feature that Nintendo decided to leave in. It's the equivalent yeah. of trapping your sim in the kitchen. And setting it on fire. Yep, this one's just having a heart attack while sports announcer yells at you. <laughs> it's a pretty good time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. All right, so, you know, heart attacks aside, let's move over to the music and sound. Really, as we had said earlier, K.K. Slider ran this, knew what was going on. And I'll, I'll ad-lib and bring you guys a little bit more about the gyroids. We didn't touch on that too much, but the gyroids were a very interesting feature, which were these little, kind of look like the cactus thing from Final Fantasy is kind of my best way to describe them. They have like an open mouth, open eyes, and they have like these little dancy arms and they would make noises. They're fantastic. They need, to, they need to make a comeback. We'll see if they're in the new Animal Crossing soon. I saw this interesting fact from Reggie 800, a really great Twitter follow for Nintendo factoids. But it's gyroids explained. In Japanese, gyroids are actually called haniwa. In real life Japan, haniwa were clay figures used in funeral rituals and buried with the dead. So when you dig up a gyroid, it's implied that you just dug up a grave. Ooh. Well, here's what I will say about that. These grave markers make my sound of my town fantastic. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's uh, it's a little dark. Some of the mm-hmm. stuff in the game is a little dark in origin. 
and in a lot of Nintendo games, it's a little dark in origin because they just base so many things around Japanese mythology and culture. Yes. But these things, they did turn into fun little things for your house. So you could set up songs, you know, if you run by and hit them all at the right time, then they create little songs in your house. Yeah, and the gyroids were cool. You know, having, you know, basically a tall one, a small one, and a fat one gave you kind of those high mids and lows to, to play around with. Because you could find certain gyroids that were like the same family. So it would all be that same kind of tonality in terms of their cadence, but the pitch would change depending on which one you had. So it was kind of cool to be able to line those up and collect those. And again, I'm hoping that we do see that into New Horizons because Nintendo is still feeding more content into that. We never got it on release. But man, that would bring me back 1,000%. I will say the one thing at the beginning of Animal Crossing, when you find one too many gyroids, it just becomes a burden a little bit where to keep them all. It's one of those things that you don't want to sell it necessarily because you Mm -hmm. don't know if you're selling the wrong gyroid, one that you might want later. But then after you find so many, it's like, man, I, I really don't have anywhere to put this stuff, even with the drawers and things that you could get to store more items and not necessarily leave them all throughout the house. Derek, you were talking to a man whose entire home was just a maze of gyros. <laughs> I collected them all. This is why the uh, Happy Room Academy didn't like you. <laughs> they, just, they just walk in and are, are just bombarded by so many sounds. <laughs> give me that rating. I ain't turning them off till you give me that this rating. This house is deafening, and <laughs> you have no stars. <laughs> Do not pass go. <laughs> Do not collect your cool Happy Room Academy trophy. <laughs> you are dead to us. So, the Animal Crossing original soundtrack was created by the team of Kenta Nagata, Toru Managishi, Shinobu Tanaka, and lead composer Kazumi Totaka. Because much of the game was unique in terms of different animals, rooms, terrain, and events, the music and sound needed to reflect those dynamic changes and differences. This meant the workload was going to be large and tasks needed to be evenly divided. For music, one composer would be in charge of solely writing indoor music, while another might specifically write event music. Before starting their own respective projects, Totaka wanted a clear and concise direction of where the music was heading before giving each composer their freedom to create what they wanted. During the planning stage of the creative process, the team wanted the music to match the peaceful and relaxing mood of the world but soon found it too relaxing and boring. Don't want to be too relaxed while I'm playing my video games. No, 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 no. It's got to have a little bit of fire, a little bit of flavor. A little, little oomph, like, you know, a little upstep, a little, like, little, yeah, little Bruno Mars behind it, some might say. There's a bee chasing me. I, I need a little, <laughs> I need to pick up my step. Yeah, I don't need no, I don't need no just peaceful beach ambiance with bees. <laughs> I need Mart's, I need Mozart going hard at me. I just picture, That's what like, I need. one of these dudes testing it out and listening to the music and falling asleep fishing or something. They're like, ah, oh, yeah. okay, it's too relaxing. <laughs> it's too relaxing. We're, we, need to, we need to get back to work. We're just taking naps. And so this was where the fix came in the music's orchestration, where it was now written use electronic and synthetic sounds, but was still composed and arranged in a way so that the music sounded natural and fresh for the player. I really love the, like, the voice, the KK Slider voice, you know, mm-hmm. that they use. And it's it's a little goofy, but it sounds vocal enough to I mean you know what's happening. I don't know, just a lot of fun. Yeah, so so KK Slider, you know, within the singing of it and the the, the even the animals speak, it's animalese, and it's actually different based in 
Japan and based in the Western releases, where the Western release is more of deeper tones in some of it, and the Japanese release is more of these lighter, not, I don't know if I want to say more polite tones, but it's just the notation of how English speakers or Western speakers are different than, you know, Japanese speakers. So they actually had two different ways of recording the voices. That's really interesting. I'm, I've never really thought about, and maybe it's just because I was young, but I never really thought about the inflection that the mm-hmm. characters really use. But to me, it was sort of like whatever music they had assigned to that particular villager, that was always the tone that I read their voice in kind of from that point on. Like sometimes when they were sad, they'd have this little sad music when they came over mm-hmm. to you. Maybe that was a little slower than their original theme or whatever, but yeah, that's, I don't know. I I never really thought about that. I feel like I need to play Animal Crossing a little bit and see if I can like pick out any of that. Oh, listen, guys, I'm, we, if you guys are interested, it's a call to action for all of you because we're getting Derek involved soon. We're going to be playing some Animal Crossing. We're reviving the 2020 hit game of all your households and coming back and talking more about it. Actually, I'm, I'm interested in Animal Crossing again just going through this episode and talking more about what the OG version had, plus what we're either missing or adding to New Horizons. Yeah, for real, though. Send us messages, Discord, Twitter. Let us know. Nagata, Minagishi, Tanaka, and Totaka would all take about a year to come up with their respective music, with Totaka working a few extra weeks at the tail end of the project on his own. This was due in part to Tataka rearranging almost 60 of his already written compositions to ensure the game would have enough music without taking up too much memory. At the game's beginning, the developers wanted the individual rooms and houses to be quiet to allow the player to relax from the outside world. Near the end of development, however, they realized they wanted quiet music to slowly fade in after one of the players turned an appliance on. The music in these rooms needed to sound cute like a cheap portable keyboard. So Tataka took it upon himself to rearrange some of those previous 60 compositions for the indoor areas, using a cute, cheap, portable keyboard. Several of these cute sounds would even make their way to the interactive town melody board, where the player was able to create their own town melody for all players to hear. The sound team, headed by sound engineer Taro Bondo, would also go all out for the game's sound design. In a game that encouraged in-game communication, the game's directors wanted the animal sounds to be more humanistic and understandable. Bando at first planned to use different voice synthesis techniques to create animal speech that sounded human. However, he couldn't get the speech to line up with the timing of the text in the game. After a discussion with Katsuya Iguchi and Asashi Nogami, they all realized that because the game's characters were animals, they didn't need to speak like people. Bando received the green light to create an animal language based around the tone of what was being talked about in each part of the game. The technology created for this was so unique and advanced at the time that a patent was even filed by Nintendo for Bando's work. Most of the sounds for the game were recorded naturally over the course of a year, captured as they naturally occurred during the change of seasons in Japan. From walking on the beachfront in sandals to traveling into the mountains of Fushimi to record cicadas, Bando and the rest of the sound team spared no expense to capture the game's idealistic soundscape. So the Animal Crossing original soundtrack contains a total of 199 music tracks, with all being strategically placed within a 24-hour window, despite many of the tracks' actual lengths not being known. Over 500 sound effects would also be recorded or created for the game, 
with 100 being dedicated just to the different kinds of footsteps. Totaka described the entire project as like a giant creative puzzle due to the music and sound taking a large chunk of the game's memory. Now, here's, here's the portion. I will say we're, you know, is Alex happy about this or sad about this? I am neutral at the time. There is no Animal Crossing vinyl. There is an Animal Crossing CD that came out in 2009 that contains a lot of the tracks from the OG game. So, Nintendo, give me my KK Ballad. Give me Adventure KK. Give me KK Rider. Honestly, a, a KK Slider vinyl. I'd be all over that. I'd be... Oh, at 100%. I mean... I'd be gobbling it up right now. Nintendo, if you build it, they will come. That's what I'm saying. So there's only a couple release versions for this iteration of the game. We obviously started off on the N64 with the Japanese release. We then came to the Nintendo GameCube for the Japanese, North American, Australian, and EU release. Finally, we have the IQ Player release. This is on June 1st, 2006, in the People's Republic of China, or China, as most of the world knows it. And that is kind of their own individual console that is somewhat monitored. So you kind of had certain games that were allowed to play on that. But that came out a couple years later um, for them to enjoy all that our beautiful town had to offer. So upon its release, Animal Crossing was subject to critical acclaim. It was named the seventh best game of all time on the GameCube by the television show X-Play on the G4 network. On IGN, the game holds an outstanding 9.1 rating. Some critics praised the game's use of the GameCube's internal clock and calendar and its inclusion of hidden NES games. However, others such as IGN's Pierre Schneider criticized its audio and visuals for being below standard quality for a GameCube game. According to the review aggregator site Metacritic, the game received a score of 87 out of 100, indicating generally favorable reviews based on 42 critics. According to Game Rankings, the game received a score of 86% based on 72 reviews. The game was a commercial success, with more than 2 million copies sold worldwide, and by July 2006, 1.3 million copies had been sold, totaling $43 million in the United States. Next Generation ranked it as the 37th highest-selling game launched for the PlayStation 2, Xbox, or GameCube between January 2000 and July 2006. ScrewAttack rated it the fifth best GameCube game on its Farewell to the GameCube 10 GameCube games list, saying it's a game that plays even when you're not and can last up to 30 years. The popularity of the series inspired the creation of an animated film based on the game's sequel Animal Crossing wild world titled dobutsu nomori which was released exclusively in japan nogami was worried however about releasing a game without a real set goal however within the first week the game sold 30,000 copies though this seemed low positive reviews and word of mouth led the game to sell over 200,000 copies at the time nintendo ended up selling out and when retailers wanted more they had to produce more cartridges to meet that demand and the game was originally marketed for children, but Nintendo was extremely surprised to see parents playing their children's copy of the game. Many parents would come home late at night to play the game and find letters left for them from their children, who had already gone to bed. These letters written by their children would tell them what they did that day. And more often than not, parents would then leave letters for their children to wake up to in the morning. So just a, a fun family experience. You know, Nintendo is kind of surprising. They always seem to have this children's mindset in mind. 
I remember reading an interview in Nintendo Power around the time that the GameCube was coming out, because one of the things that I think people were confused by was PlayStation 2. You could put in a DVD and watch it. Mm-hmm. Xbox, you could put in a DVD and watch it. But in GameCube, the discs were small, and I remember reading an interview where they talked about why they made that decision, and it was because they didn't want, like, a parent hijacking the GameCube and using it as a DVD player or something like that. Mm, Okay, that's interesting. It's surprising to me. I mean, Animal Crossing, I feel like, is a game for people of all ages. Yeah. And it's weird to me that they don't see some of those things kind of going into it, but everything that you just read, I mean, is right in line with, I think, the mentality for a lot of the GameCube design and a lot of the GameCube games. I fully agree with that, especially in the GameCube era. You know, and I don't want to fault Nintendo for this, but it it always seems Nintendo doesn't understand at least their Western audience at times. Whenever they're like, yeah, we made this thing. People are going to love it and people hate it. Or they're like, this game is for children and it's exclusively like adults who jump into it. And they're like, what is going on? (laughs) And it's like, no, man, like you're just creating amazing content that even though a lot of it is cartoonish, it still maintains a maturity level. It's very much like animated films that obviously have mature content or mature elements behind it but it's all wrapped up in this cutesy little world that allows adults and kids to enjoy it and i think that's kind of what animal crossing brought i do think sometimes they fail to realize that a lot of adults aren't looking for those intense games to hop into they're really looking for just an escape something relaxing and animal Mm -hmm. crossing definitely fits the mold of that speaking of adults in the game of Animal Crossing, in 2004, Adam Stipp wrote a letter in Animal Crossing and delivered it to his girlfriend, Sarah Buck. On Valentine's Day, Stipp told Buck to start up Animal Crossing and see what event was planned in-game for the holiday. Buck opened a letter that stated, I love you, Sarah Dane Buck. Will you marry me? And obviously, I think we all know what she said. Uh, hard no. You just proposed me in a video <laughs> game. No, I'm just kidding. Of course, she said yes. And we actually see that even in some of New Horizon, you know, we're seeing that in even some more of the modern stuff. I mean, I've seen that on Twitch. I've seen a couple other different proposals because they've added, you know, a bit more with fireworks and other stuff like that. You can actually spell stuff out with the fireworks. So there's really cool, like little bits of that. So again, going back to, like we said, it's kind of a game for everyone and you find your own thing. You know, I am a very neat person, so I love the decorating aspect of it. And there's just so many cute things, especially having that socialization, that companionship of having four players, not necessarily play at once, but log in and leave gifts, leave letters, leave pitfalls if you want, if you want to create enemies for the rest of your life, you know? It, it allowed for all of that, which is really, really cool. In addition to that, there's also a Korean comic that revolves around a son experiencing his mother's love after her passing by visiting her town in Animal Crossing. During an interview with Edge Online, director Katsuya Ugichi stated, To think that I was able to help create something or that something that I worked on played such an important role in someone's life and helped them understand something important to them, it makes me really happy. It's beautiful. Stuff like that. It's why a lot of these, you know, game creators did it. You know, as as Aguchi had stated, you know, when he wanted to create this and create this sense of companionship, it kind of created it for a lot of people. You know, Animal Crossing brought the masses a game that allowed the player to really have no end goal. And that was perfect. The structure of working around Tom Nook's payments and the freedom to fish, decorate, and explore 
gave the player a sense of freedom mixed with a quasi-end game of being debt-free. All of this with the added perk of having animals as neighbors gave Animal Crossing the charm it needed to sell units. What could have been an animal RPG dungeon crawler became the groundwork to future Animal Crossing titles, and what saved many of us hours of boredom being stuck inside the terrible year? That was 2020. And it did. You know, I mean, I know we're comparing it a lot to newer Animal Crossing titles, but it really did. I mean, look at the masses that came out and bought the newer Animal Crossing and used this as a crazy sense of community during the pandemic. You know, so many online forums I've seen and websites created like sell turnips. Oh, I have this variant of this surfboard. Come to my island. I'll give it to you. Like, we'll just do some trades. It's going to be awesome. And it was just such a weird, fun sense of community that kind of crossed all all barriers of people just like hey let's play animal crossing look at my goofy town it's so much fun it was definitely something that i think 2020 needed so yeah obviously the pandemic wasn't planned and the timing of animal crossing coming out just kind of worked out but so glad that it did that people were able to kind of just play on have a reason to like play online together in mm-hmm. a casual environment like that experience you know going and interacting with not only other players, but obviously the fake villagers as well. Oh, yeah. I mean, Animal Crossing is just a great escape game. And it worked perfect for what it is. And so let, let's let's chat. We've been already chatting about it a bunch in this general reaction, but let's talk about it, Derek. You know, why did we choose this game? Why is it important to gaming? You know, and, and bring your opinions about it. Let's start you off. Animal Crossing, to me, the, especially the first Animal Crossing, was really like the only Animal Crossing that I beat because Mm -hmm. I loved it so much. It was so fresh. And when I say beat, of course, I meant paying off the house. Yeah. So much fresh exploration in that game. The museum was relatively small. There was a reason to play this game year-round because the seasons changed. There was a reason to try and get on during holidays to see what kind of special events might happen and i just don't really remember any other games that were doing something like that at the time and of course if you wanted to experience that stuff without it being the actual day you could go in and manipulate the gamecube clock at your risk of if you go too far ahead your town's now covered in weeds maybe half your town moved away because you quote didn't you know put this in air quotes You didn't visit them for six months, and really it was just like, no, bro, I saw you 20 minutes ago. I just manipulated this clock. (laughs) Yeah. So the game was just a lot of fun. Um, I get nostalgic about this one. I kind of wish I still had this one. I have the Wii one. I don't have the Switch one. I feel like the first one was such a perfect amount of content for me. It wasn't too overwhelming. I didn't feel like I had to play it all the time year-round. I could just hop on in a season, catch the bugs and fish that I needed to catch, maybe dig up some fossils, submit it to the museum, and just have a little bit of fun every now and again. I'm going to tell you this story. Uh, I'm still devastated by it all these years later. I was trying to complete the museum after I had paid off the house. My first priority was paying off the house. Mm -hmm. I caught this fish um, in the river, and it was a guppy. And when I caught the guppy, I was like, man, a stupid guppy. Like, that really sucks. This is nothing. And then when I took it to Tom Nook, it was like, 
yeah, I'm going to give you like 20,000, 30,000 bells for this guppy. <laughs> and I'm like, hell yeah, man, let's do that. And uh-huh. so I sold the guppy to him. And then I realized that the guppy was like one of the rarest fish oh. in the game. Couldn't ever find it again. Was not able to complete the museum. I just needed that stupid guppy. Never got it ever again. I still think about it all the time. So now anytime that I've played a new Animal Crossing, I throw bells to the wind. Don't care about the bells. I'm all about the museum, all about the collecting. And that at its core to me is what makes Animal Crossing so great is the collecting. Mm -hmm. For me, Animal Crossing, the original, like probably an eight out of 10, maybe an eight and a half, nine out of 10. I feel like... The inclusivity of the Game Boy Advance stuff was really neat. Oh, yeah. I feel like having the villagers and the amount that they existed was really neat and not having them be overwhelming. You know, your house got bigger, but was still relatively small and manageable, and it didn't take like a million hours to pay everything off. I had a lot of fun with the first Animal Crossing game. And so... When I played the later ones, I just was so not ready to do all of that again. Yeah. And I think maybe that's what's turned me off from the series. But I am super intrigued by the island concept. And I think I need to give that one a shot. I, I, I will say, you know, this is one that I'll agree with you on. The number system, of course, is the dumbest rating system ever. But I'll agree with you on your arbitrariness. But I will agree in, in saying, you know, I, I'm actually very excited as someone who's sunk way too many hours into this during the pandemic, uh, you know, New Horizons, that I'm really excited for you to play it. It, it, It's out of every, I've played pretty, I think almost every single one from the DS, um, you know, the Wii one, the 3DS ones, even the mobile one. I've played them all. And this one is the one that got me back into the series that was so much like the first one. Like it hearkened back to that. There's, you know, obviously, we still have never received the NES releases again. And obviously because they want that on virtual console stuff. So I under, understand what they're doing with emulators. But all the other little things that I loved about it have pretty much been brought back, especially with a lot of the updates that Nintendo did over 2020 and 2021. And just adding so many other cool content and doing cross things. You can get like Legend of Zelda stuff in it now. You can get Mario stuff in it. And so they've been adding that and doing like these monthly updates. And so, yeah, in the, the museum, man, there's so much. The museum's so cool in this one. So that's, that's one of my favorite things for you to see is just how cool the museum is and how much time and effort they actually really put into that is going to be so cool. So, yeah, I mean, hearkening back to that, it was such a fun game to play and having a you know, Game Boy Advance, going to Captain's Island, doing all that, and just even like the rumor mills that popped up of like villagers who were like so rare if you talk to them. They actually like just spoke to you in like crazy text and they could like crash your game. And again, this was also the era of very early internet. So rumors were never really disproven easily. You know, they were just like spread everywhere. So it was just such a fun thing of like, you know, get rich quick schemes. You had to go left, left, right, up, down, up, down. The dump will spawn, you know, bells and bells and bells because the secret code in there. And those were just such a fun time with it. And I, I truly enjoyed this series. I truly enjoy most of what Nintendo creates. And again, Animal Crossing got me through a rough patch in there. You know, it's just a, a really fun game to be able to play. So, if I had to rate it, 
you know, I started off with Nook's Empire, obviously started off with humble beginnings of being a loan shark, um, and eventually owns his own island to uh, loan shark on it and avoid a tax in his own tax haven. So applaud that. That's a plus. Um, take out that there's no more cool barista uh, eagle owl thing uh, below the museum. So that's out of there. Uh, add in Stitches, uh, who is a bear, like a stuffed bear. That's pretty cool. That's not a real animal. That's a fake thing. I love that. Um, and then just multiply it by the amount of people I was able to meet during the pandemic and scalp their bells from them because that was fun. <laughs> Out of surviving the year and waking up to play this game. Alex Bell Shark. Oh, dude, you, you <laughs> got to be, you got to do what you got to do. So, yeah, so that was our coverage of Animal Crossing. You know, it's, it's a fantastic game for the GameCube. The GameCube, again, weird system, had some of the most memorable, iconic games on it that have grown today for a lot of stuff, continued on a series, you know, from the N64, other, other Nintendo consoles. But it was this weird bridge that really brought a lot more Japanese gaming to the West and has really expanded upon that. Research for this episode was done by Alex Kendall, Evan Barr, and Richard Scanlon. Music for this episode was composed and recorded by Evan Barr. And, as always, we love them. We take care of everybody here. You know, it's what we do. Um, so we also want to thank those who support us monetarily, and those being our patrons. If you'd like to sign for our Patreon today, we just did some changes on it. Um, we got some really cool content. We've got, you know, ad-free episodes. We've got some chats with Derek and I throughout the month. You can pick the bonus episodes. Even have an entire new show on there from The Bargain Bin. If you haven't checked it out, it's super amazing. We're actually going to be dropping, you know, some of our earlier episodes so you can kind of see what we're looking like with those. But it's a fun time. But we want to thank those people today. And let us start off with Tactics, Sky the Bear, Grant Dillon, Mr. Choff, Cowan Fung Feliciano, Alex Harper, Nick Hyman, Tuna0317, Richard Scanlon, McChief, Big Papa Samechki, Climbing Spork, Mr.1898, William Kroll, Cameron Collier, and Mr. Toot. So thank you all so much for the support. Truly appreciate it. And uh, we'll see you there. If you haven't yet, give us a follow on Instagram. You can also follow us on Twitter. And please join our Discord. It's free to join. It's a lot of fun. Alex and I hang out in there all the time. We have a really great community. And we'd love to see more people in there. Absolutely. And if you haven't already, catch us over at twitch.tv slash sourman70. That's S-O-U-R-M-A-N-7-0. We'll be playing some fun games, especially stuff that, you know, Derek and I have harkened back with, some newer stuff. And it's just fun to, like, be able to kind of live interact with all of you. So it's a good time. You can listen to us on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. Please leave us a review if you haven't. It helps us with the podcast a ton. And we really appreciate the feedback. And as always, I am your host, Alex Kendall. And I'm your host, Derek Baker. And this was Finish the Fight, a gaming podcast. Oh, hey there, Mr. Rossetti. Hey, here's the thing. Here's the thing. I know. Okay, yes, yes, yes. I, I, I know we didn't really mention you a lot in this episode. And it wasn't you. It wasn't. It wasn't part of that. It was just you know time constraints. You know how it is. Yeah. You know I feel really bad about that. I know. I know.
I know. I know you're a big part of the game. I understand. I know. I know that. You're, yes, you are. You're very scary. Yes. No, no, we get it. Okay, so, so you know, if we had restarted our game, you would come here with us saving because you're just a nice guy. I, I get that. You're just looking out for us. And, and that's... No, 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 no. That's not on our part that we did that. That was, like, again... Budget. You know, we... We... we no, we, we appreciate... Yes, we, we appreciate what you... We appreciate you. We... Yes. Thank you. You're... Yes. You're very helpful. No, you don't have to come back. You don't have to. No. Please. No, please. Oh, and, and hey, hey, hey. It was not us who got you fired in the newest Animal Crossing game. That was... We had nothing to do with that. Again, again. Huge fans. Huge, huge fans, Derek, right? Huge fans of the... Huge, yeah, huge, huge fans. Huge, huge fans. Huge fans. Huge fans. So, so, you know, we'll just... We'll just leave. The episode's done with. We're... No, no, no. Leave. We're, we're done. We can't reset the episode yesterday. I, I know. Like you said, no resetting. Yeah. We can't reset this episode. It's done. It's We're done. saving it. It's done. But hey, hey, how about this? How about this? Next time I'm around, I go to Brewster's, I get a coffee, I'll, I'll bring you one. You, you seem like you need one at this point. No, no, it's, it's, it's okay. I, I've got you. We'll take care of it. Uh, okay. Okay. We're good for now. We're good. Okay. Okay. All right, Mr. Say, we're going to finish. Can we let the outro go? Is that cool? Okay, okay, we, right. we promise next time we do this again, Derek, next time we do this again, we will not forget. We will have, we have your back. We are here for you. Yes, we appreciate you. We'll, we'll throw you in next time. You'll be the first thing. Exactly, the first thing, the celebrity of the game, basically. But Mr. Rossetti, thank you again for everything you've done. And uh, okay, let's just, let's just go.